where is God? You know, where, where is all the intervening power I've been learning about and believed in? You know, one of the things I talk about is I wrestle constantly with that. What is that silence? Where is God in that moment amidst, you know, you know, harrowing circumstances? It's really hard to say, where's God calling me to, to in that moment? You know, in my case, I had no control over what was happening to me. <clears throat> so how, where is where is God? And asking that question truthfully and honestly and sitting with it for as long as necessary. Um, because if we can't uh, discern where the call to life is in that moment, I don't think it's worth asking. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett. And my conversation today is with Dr. Patrick B. Reyes. Pat is a practical theologian, educator, administrator, and institutional strategist, serving as the Director of Strategic Partnerships for Doctoral Initiatives at the Forum for Theological Exploration. He's also the author of a book entitled, Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. In today's conversation, Pat and I discuss his theopoetic lens as an author and educator working to create opportunities for scholars of color to flourish. We also discuss his story of surviving to adulthood and how using narrative can help overcome the obstacles of colonialism. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. As this is the Theopoetics podcast, I'd love to open up the conversation today just to hear you reflect on what it means for you to inhabit a poetics in your own work. Yeah, I think it's a great starting point. Um, you know, given my work uh, supporting scholars of color in religion, <clears throat> I have a kind of multiple inheritance, inheritances, um, specifically around uh you know, my home community in California, not too far from where you are. Um, you know, people don't really write from that space, especially not Latinos um, within the Central Valley. Uh, so I grew up in Salinas, California. It's a, you know, valley is most known for lettuce. Uh, it does have a writer up there, John Steinbeck, um, but not a lot of uh, Latinos writing from the space or from the fields. And then in my work here at FTE, the Forum for Theological Exploration, specifically in supporting scholars of color, we've been doing this work since 1968. Uh, Benjamin Rip Mays and Charles Shelby Rooks um, got us started. So we've been supporting scholars of color um, of African descent um, since 68, Latinos since 76. And one of the things I you know, always tell my uh, fellows and um, FT's alumni is that this work is about saving lives and bodies. Um, it's not just, you know, to get the, the good words out. <laughs> so as you uh, so generously introduced me in, in the book, uh, Nobody Cries was trying to capture poetics um, from these kind of places, these scarred places in uh, in our landscape in North America, where uh, colonialism, violence, oppression um, is kind of running rampant. So what does it mean for a person of color, and in particular for a light-skinned Latino like myself, Chicano from Northern California, what does it mean when you have to discern uh, your life, um, where survival comes first and um, thriving um, comes second. And so we, the poetics from from that book really are about capturing the raw, the gritty, the um, sweat, the blood, the tears, um, the, you know, the texture of the ground and the earth that I walked on in the, in the fields there. And, and what does it mean to, you know, to be now in, in uh, higher education with smooth floors, you know, marble countertops, that sort of thing. So, I'm trying to capture the textures of this world is really where um, 
you know, my work in injustice and equity um, kind of meets up with uh, the rawness of the experience of people of color in this country. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I really picked up on that as I was reading your book. Um, there, there's so much beauty in your vulnerability and sharing your story. And I just wanted to thank you for for the courage of doing that, it's so meaningful. And as you call to, to attention this idea that, that there's a movement from the surviving of bodies to the flourishing of, of life that's beyond that. And as you sort of frame even in the narrative of your book, this idea of vocation from the very beginning as, uh, I think you defined it on page 13 as God's call to new life for all creation. Did you talk about the, the role that, um, that struggle for survival plays in moving in that direction, especially from your own experience and from your Latinx community uh, in, in that place in Salinas. Yeah, so I mean, I was, uh, you know, two things really to answer that. One is, you know, I was trained in a, you know, primarily white institutions, uh, Christian institutions, um, theologically, um, given this great education where vocation and discerning my vocation was a big um, kind of central point, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And I had an experience where I was sitting in a seminary class um, classroom and after working full time uh, throughout my, you know, college education and, you know, coming on several generations who had done a little bit better for each one so we could, so we could thrive. I was sitting in a room and, you know, one of the, the uh, foundational questions was, you know, what is it that you want to do with this education? <clears throat> and so it was, you know, kind of a qu standard question of vocation. And people are going around the room um, saying, you know, I want to go and work on, on the border and do immigration stuff. Or, you know, I want to go work with the, you know, the least of these and, you know, help impoverished communities. Or I want to go do, you know, one of my colleagues said, I want, I have a, I want to work in gang intervention. Um, I want to work in a church. Um, that's experiencing um, high levels of um, homelessness in the in the neighborhood. And I remember reflecting as they're kind of talking about this, that this isn't, you know, I didn't realize that those were jobs <laughs> people could do. Yeah. You know, that that's, uh, that was just something we did in, in our community. So the, this kind of call to life came from this uh, deep embodied experience that not, not only did I have to, negotiate different parameters around, you know, survival, just kind of making it until tomorrow. Um, but the very things that people wanted to work on because they felt compelled by either a faith commitment or just kind of a personal commitment to go into communities like the one I grew up in and do some good work. Um, that was something that, you know, and if you've read the book, my grandmother did for everyone um, in our community. So, you know, Grandma Karma, Carmen Reyes, who's in, you know, Bakersfield, California, you know, God rest her soul. She, uh, you know, helped us all survive a little bit. So I said, you know, where's that story where the where the call to life, uh, just surviving day to day and honoring those who help us get there is center, um, you know, and that's, you know, that was kind of the foundations. The other thing on the on the call to life, <clears throat> so you can create, you know, these conditions for the next generation to thrive um, was also recognizing that, you know, I'm a survivor of domestic abuse and a lot of, um, you know, being surrounded by gang violence. I also had, I got a lot of breaks, you know, I kind of won the lottery. Um, you know, I had a great father who, um, you know, was just a you know, fantastic man, helped me, you know, made sure I had everything I needed to thrive. My grandmother, who I write a lot about, the Christian brothers in Salinas, California, gave me a break by letting me go to their school. And 
um, let me participate in every activity I wanted to and give me a scholarship to go there. So really give me the opportunity to, to thrive in an environment that I might not have otherwise. Um, so, you know, I caught a couple, couple of breaks and I, this call to life comes out of that. So, you know, if you're in those situations, you know, both, how do you discern the call when say violence is overwhelming at the same time, how do you take inventory of all those who are calling you to life? Yeah, I think those, those are great questions. And I, I just hear in your story so much resonance with what I've been reading as I have looked into the history of my own location here in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, there's a book called Chicanos in a Changing Society that sort of chronicles the colonization of this area by some of the mm-hmm. settlers over time. And it, it's just, it's, you know, like you said, there's there's this enmeshing of heritage and, and the influence of your grandmother and your father, and then also some lucky breaks that not everybody gets. And so how do you see your work, you know, as somebody who has moved forward to life and, you know, achieved a certain level of success and, and received multiple graduate degrees, and you're now pouring back into those communities? How do you see your role in calling people of color and the Latinx community and you know, the black community, as you mentioned, to life. And sometimes the, the circumstances of colonialization seem so insurmountable. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, I'm honestly, I'm, you know, I should, you know, recognize elders too, when they stand there, you know, the fir- person who wrote my, uh, the forward to my book, Jimmy Santiago Baca, um, who's an incredible poet, <clears throat> author himself, um, wrote one of the foundational you know, piece of art for me, um, poetry, a book of poetry called Immigrants in Our Own Land, where he's reflecting on the Chicano um, experience uh, in New Mexico, um, you know, and formerly incarcerated folks or even incarcerated folks who are dreaming about, you know, what does life look like in places where you're surrounded by barbed wire, you know, you don't have daylight, don't have opportunities, access to opportunities. So I have, I have elders and uh, folks in, um, you know, a variety of communities that have kind of laid great uh, foundations and framework for me to to do this work. Um, you know, and the uh, the challenge, I think, the real challenge for the for the call to life is um, when I say <clears throat> go back and do some work. You know, in in communities that don't have access to education, my area is, and obviously in education, we have fellowships for scholars of color. So that's at the top end of the you know, PhDs, you know, looking at Salinas, you know, there's less than a percent of a percent in the zip code I grew up in have a graduate degree in any field. Um, You know, in my immediate family, it's, you know, my dad and a few of us um, in that little, you know, the one of the 29 or so in my generation um, have a regular uh, college degree. So credentials, um, academic credentials aren't there. So if you're talking about creating conditions for life or that call to life, it's finding what you can leverage within your own sort of power. And right now for me, that's, that's education. It's not the be all end all for those things, but how do we pipeline and create conditions for uh, communities that don't have access in the ways that I did, um, you know, in, in very tangible ways. So, you know, right now I, I run a healthy uh, fellowship for scholars of color. You know, we have been doing this, as I said, for a really long time. And then on the other end, you know, my father um, started, and I'm supporting him in this, uh, you know, a scholarship for named after my grandmother, who's again featured in the book, 
for students that are earning a 2.0 to you know 2.5 from the Bakersfield area that are going to go to junior college <clears throat> because um, you know trying to provide some resource incentive um, for folks to find their own way so it's really about taking what power you do have um, and leveraging it for for the good of the community yeah that's beautiful and speaking of beauty I I love the way that you framed uh, the idea of of vocation or call um, as as this summoning or this call, and uh, it reminded me of uh, the Celtic poet and philosopher John O'Donohue, who's who points out in his book on beauty how the root word for beauty as well is this word for calling, and so there there's something beautiful um, in in how you are taking this very pragmatic idea that that this call to life is, is embedded in your own experience, um, in your own story and its narrative, and that you're doing what you can do in your own personal unique vocation to call life forth. And, and that is actually such, a, such beautiful work in that regard. And so uh, I think sometimes when we see um, you know, how systemic the problems are in our world, especially, here in the West in America, and when we read narratives like yours of of suffering and survival, uh, sometimes we get overwhelmed or overburdened by, um, you know, just by how how big those issues are and how systemic they are. And and yet you you have this this sort of call for each person to to sort of root themselves in their story and their experience and use that as a means to transform it. Yeah, and I would also say, you know, where the the question for my book, you know, nobody cries when we die is kind of, I mean, that's coming from a Tupac lyric, but it's also to signal that, you know, where do you look for that? So who's looking? How are you looking? So when I was writing that, um, you know, stories about my grandmother, you know, how do you, how do you capture the beauty of, say, my my grandmother? Uh, making tortillas when I'm sad, you know, when I'm, when I'm going through a really depressing time of my life, I'm basically kicked out of my house and I go and she's the only house that I can go to. And she does, you know, some of the things I think are the most uh, foundational pieces to vocational discernment. You know, she, she said, uh, you know, Mijo, are you hungry? And she fed me. Um, and when we were done talking and done eating after she overfed me, as she always did, she said, do you need a place to stay? Do you need a roof over your head? And, you know, she gave me a, a place to sleep. And those like foundational moments, I mean, we, you know, in all my theological training, this stuff that, you know, in the, in the you know, Latino theology literature, Locotidiano, the stuff that happens every day, um, wasn't captured in the vocational literature. You know, we would rather wax and wane around, you know, trying to discern, uh, you know, out of, out of the mystery of God, how do we figure out who we are when I think, you know, God's mystery is actually really right in front of us a lot of the time, um, you know, whispering to us, telling, you know, giving us suggestions. You know, I talk about, you know, there's the, a lot of great work on, you know, Quaker spirituality and vocation around sitting around in silence and, you know, hearing God's, the still small voice speak into the space and what you should do. And I was saying, you know, as a Latino in California, the best vocational discernment exercise I ever got was sitting around my grandmother's table, um, you know, with all my cousins, aunts and uncles, you know, 25 people, kids running around and me saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking about X, Y and Z. And being corrected, encouraged, yelled at, screamed at, kicked and pulled, you know, topics changing from second to second, all while eating great food um, in a really tiny, small, confined um, neighborhood of Bakersfield um, that just was so, 
you know, I got so much clarity from uh, my family speaking into my life um, in the way that I think others get it from, you know, stillness and quiet and being able to ponder mm. and reflect on the inner voice. Um, but for me, the inner voice was being spoken all around me. Yeah, I love that contrast. I mean, I think we've inherited such a disembodied theology. Um, and, you know, it's easy for us to sit in the ethereal mystery and try to, you know, discern or sense God's voice in that way. Uh, but but your framing, I think, is so much more helpful and so much more embodied. And where I think one of the transitions that's happening in our world is we're coming to to find these ancient ways and these voices that, that come from within the body. And even science is sort of supporting this this idea as well. And I, I loved, there was a quote on page 177 in your book where you sort of said this pretty pretty succinctly and to the point. And you said, uh, by authentically witnessing suffering and acknowledging the pain, violence, and deep wounds that have occurred, we might be able to hear the voice of God. And that's a very different location for the voice of God. Um, but one that that most most great teachers and you know in the spiritual paths will will talk about that that the, the path of suffering is often our greatest inroad into into hearing God's voice. So could you talk maybe just elaborate a little bit more, if you're willing, um, as to how that that voice was sort of called out from within you, precisely because of your own story of suffering. Yeah, so I'll give a, a particular example from the from the book itself. You know, there's a moment <clears throat> where I talk about, um, you know, d domestic abuse. You know, there's a my mother started dating a abusive man who was in the house when I was just a preteen, and um, you know, I I talk about him, um, you know, you know, lifting me up and choking me out until I couldn't breathe and um, mm. you know passed out. And in this moment where I'm suspended in, in air, you know, I remember, you know, dangling hopelessly trying to figure out both where my, you know, actual father was, but where, where, where is God, you know, where, where is all the intervening power I had been learning about and believed in. Um, mm. And it was in that moment, you know, a, you know, a stark silence um, responded, you know, nothing nothing happened. There was no great intervention. There was no booming voice. It was deep silence. Um, and, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is I wrestle constantly with that. What is that silence? Where is God in that moment? Um, you know, I, I talk about the call to life showing up the next day with the Christian brothers, um, you know, having a, having just a safe space that you can go to and study and and thrive and figure out life amidst, you know, you know, harrowing circumstances. Um, it's easy to say that God, God is there and God is calling me to life. It's really hard to say, where's God calling me to, to in that moment. And I wasn't trying to construct a, you know, a theodicy. I wasn't trying to get, you know, where account for God in that moment and try to say that God will be, it was just to say that in those moments where, um, especially young kids who are experiencing stuff that are complete, that's completely out of his or her control. And my, you know, in my case, I had no control over what was happening to me. <clears throat> yeah. So how, where is, where is God and how do we, and asking that question um, truthfully and honestly and sitting with it for as long as necessary, um, because if we can't um, discern where the call to life is in that moment, <clears throat> I don't think it's worth asking. Yeah. Um... 
gosh, thanks so much again, just for sharing your story and that when I, when I read that, it was, it was very powerful. Um, and, and obviously your re-articulation of it now is, is as well. And there's a special kind of power that, that is found when people are able to, I think really articulate what, what they learn in those kinds of experiences. And it reminds me of, of Ellie B. Sells, uh, you know, pretty well-known statement about um, what he experienced during the Holocaust and asking very similar questions um, mm -hmm. about, about God's presence and God's activity in, in those kinds of moments. And so what I'm hearing you say, if, if I'm understanding correctly, is that it's almost a, a practical turn to look, um, uh, look in those, those wounds that we carry for not, not, you know, maybe the ways that God showed up or that God was, was supposed to intervene and didn't, but for the moments that, are, that come out of those experiences where there's opportunity for new life. And you sort of mentioned that with the story of being able to go and just spend a day with, with the brothers following that incident. But, but is, that, is that something I'm kind of picking up on? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, and, and to tie to the theme of our conversation around poetics, you know, what we know about trauma and, and the way it works on the brain and, um, you know, it disrupts the narrative, you know, language doesn't fit. <clears throat> so when I was, you know, thinking about those moments and trying to conjure up uh, language to describe them, to capture them um, accurately, that gives both the, the story, um, you know, treats it honestly and tries to depict the, the conditions I was in as, as accurately as possible at the same time saying, you know, there are there are moments where poetics is all you can do because the you know the the narrative of trauma disrupts the grammar of uh, you know politeness and and you know lin linear thinking um, linear writing. Um, so the, in those moments, the only thing you can do is, is really kind of you know towards the end of the book, actually the very end of the book is a prayer, disruptive prayer, with tons of imagery and moments to sit in silence and see images and think about it as a movie and think about it as, you know, radio. Um, it was a prayer to kind of reflect the, the confusion of that violence and trying to figure out, you know, what is a, how do you discern yourself out of, to use our, our um, theological language out of the violence of Friday, you know, through the confusion of Saturday and into some sort of resurrection on Sunday. Yeah. So as you use that word poetics in that context, what does it mean to you? So poetics for me is, um, you know, the, the, you know, we reflected a little bit about beauty. We reflected a little bit about the disruption of, of set narrative. Uh, for me, poetics is uh, reflecting the, um, the, the story behind the story. You know, in my doctoral work, one of the, the images I give in Salinas is this, uh, the Salinas River is uh, technically an upside down river. You know the the river runs underground for the most part, and poetics is the you know the attempt of language to capture the underground river to say what's below the surface um, that you know refuses the the dialogue and the and the politeness of of grammar. I love that image. That's that's so helpful. Uh, it reminds me of Meister Eckhart when when he says that God is an underground river who can't be dammed up. You know, yep. so those those kinds of metaphors we need to talk about the depths. And uh, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as we reflect on 
on this story that you've shared, uh, your narrative account, uh, you're, you're obviously embracing a poetics as you tell your story and you, and you move to calling people to life. There was, there was a, uh, an analogy in your book that I thought was, was so beautiful and I hadn't heard before and I was wondering if you'd share it with us. And it's the analogy of the Redwoods. Do you remember that one? Yes. Yeah, could you tell us a little yes. bit about that? So the Redwoods are native California or, you know, the um, West Coast. Um, so I, where Salinas is, it's just, I had these really fond memories of going up to uh, Santa Cruz in particular and Aptos um, and hiking, actually, you know, talk about violence, you know, for, to the Loma Prieta earthquake where the epicenter was, you know, the big earthquake that hit in 89 that I remember very vividly. But you go up into these redwoods and they're so close to the sea and the air is pure and they're the tallest trees in the world. And um, I, I got to seminary and we were reading Howard Thurman, who I love, whose work, you know, is the foundation of a lot of what I do. Um, you know, the quiet contemplation and thinking about vocation. I mean, I, it's built on on the framework that he provided, especially for people of color in this country. And um, we were reading something and, you know, I had a professor say, you know, you'd really, you'd, I think you would jive with this work. And he had this, especially since I was really frustrated and felt alone in um, out in Boston, which is a long, long way away from California or Mexico, which is where the majority of my family's from, you know, European ancestors from Macedonia. Either way, I'm really far from my context in Boston, this cold, cold place with winter that, you know, burned my soul. And um, I get this passage that um, from an inward journey around, um, you know, the we find our roots. He, he starts describing this tree that's alone out in the wilderness that drives his roots deep down. And, and you drive those roots deep down to draw on the wellsprings of life. <clears throat> and I remember reading that and thinking, man, that's messed up. Why does the tree have to be alone? There's got to be a better, <laughs> there's got to be a better vision for how to survive as a person of color. And so I, I started reflecting on, you know, the, the space and the, and the, nature that was around me and the redwoods, which are the tallest trees, you know, some of the heaviest trees in the world, um, don't stand on their own at all. In fact, they don't have deep roots. They have very shallow roots given their size. You know, they can go over 300 feet tall in the air and their roots are shallow. Um, and what they do is they interconnect their roots around a mother tree. So you have a, you know, uh, a mother tree that kind of springs out and, um, you know, as other trees rise up, they intertwine their roots. So you have this beautiful interconnected below the surface root structure that holds the tallest trees on earth up. And to me, that was so much closer to my experience um, about how I think about people of color, Latinos, um, folks on the margins and their uh, experience of surviving to adulthood or uh, realizing their vocation, that it takes these deep, deep, you know, deep interconnected roots um, that are holding each other, some of the tallest trees in the world up um, in family. Uh, and I think that to me is just that image of being that, you know, all of us are stronger, essentially together, that we can grow taller together. Um, and that we're not supposed to be off in the middle of the wilderness, you know, diving our roots deep down till we hit water. Um, but actually we can hold each other up in, in pretty shallow space as long as we intertwine our roots. I just think that was, you know, that was such a, that was a powerful image for me, just learning from nature 
and I'll just say this too, you know, that's kind of a, a mantra I have going forward around, um, and just wrote a piece on migration and immigration. And, you know, one of the things I think is so missing in our uh, world is, and why all this violence is wrapping up is people don't know how to connect their roots. They don't know how to see each other's deep histories and pasts um, as part of their own tree structure to hold each other up. We would be stronger together if we connected our roots. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, mm. it's so impressive. You know, I mean, if you get, you got some down where you are, but if your listeners can make it up to Northern California and the Muir woods or go out to Santa Cruz and just experience the beauty that is, that is around and see these trees thriving. Um, it, it really is incredible. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful picture of, you know, the potential that that is held within humanity, um, the mm-hmm. the societies that we could create um, if we were to hold one another up. And I think at this time, you know, in history, at this point, uh, from this vantage point here in America, and the continued division and fragmentation uh, that is happening, and and obviously a lot of the the white fragility and and things that are playing themselves out, uh, I think are directly connected to this impoverished epistemology that we have, or this, this, this lack of connection with history that you just exposed, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I just, as somebody who comes from more of like a process relational worldview, this, this relationality of entwining roots, especially with how organic of a metaphor that actually is, is so beautiful and so compelling. Uh, to push us to a new place today. And I, I think this is where sometimes, uh, you know, Khaled and I in some of our past dialogues have sort of joked because even in his book, as he as he sort of lays out these different biopoetic camps, if you will, of like there's this processy one and there's this liberationist one that I'm like, well, there's there's so much resonance, you know? Like I wouldn't want to <laughs> divide them up. Uh, and And I just think that the, the vision that that, that metaphor of, of the redwood forest with, with the roots intertwining um, lays out for us is quite an invitation to today. And so I, I just wanted to thank you for, for bringing that up and, and for, for sharing it with us. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to say that too around the different forms of poetics, you know, you know, folks will know that I'm not a, a purist of any school or um really anything you know i'm I'm interdisciplinary in in nature and um if you you know read the book it's it's you know uh kind of jumps in and out of time and um you know linear thinking it goes from theological reflection to you know deeply traumatic moments to joyful moments to you know some deep scholarship you know around any particular topic um and and part of that part of that is to say is that you know for me um, these kind of breakdown of who does what and how um, really misses the point of celebrating uh, the different art forms that can emerge, uh, you know, different types of poetics that can emerge. Now, of course, I have my leanings in, into where I kind of fit and who I roll with, but there's there's definitely this sort of, uh, you know, let's separate everyone out and try to figure out which school you belong to. But, right. you know, we're, if we are truly artists, you know, let's create studios that, you know, create life, that create beauty. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the metaphor plays there too. I think that we're better together when we're yep. in, when we're in meshing our, our, our plurality, you know, mm-hmm. and 
And I, yeah, and and obviously, as we do have our own unique diversities, uh, there there's something that's actually still deeply connected in, in the midst of our difference. And so, yeah, I love that that picture. I will say I'm laughing because you know one of the other things, just to extend the metaphor a little bit, because you know that's what we do. The um, uh, I. A, a passage that didn't make it into the book was I was describing this, uh, the redwoods. <clears throat> and, um, I tried to add a little too much, uh, poetic flair to, um, what it's like to be in this kind of deeply intertwined community. Um, you know, being from a community of color, you know, a part of Latinos who are, you know, facing a whole host of oppressions and colonialisms, um, you know, that's, you know, surfacing today, in very violent ways, but have, have always been there below the surface. But I, I liked it to, uh, you know, white folks coming in, taking their axes to, and saws to chop a, chop the redwoods down to make their uh, decks so they can stand on and have, you know, cool barbecues. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't as poetic. It was a little too, it was a little too raw, but there is that sort of sense that, um, you know, this interconnectedness is also to kind of, you know, take inventory. All right. So if we have uh, these roots where uh, that is, you know, meant to keep us up and prop us up for life, that we have to actually take that serious, that, you know, these these are important lives to help stand up, not necessarily to cut down, um, to make use of. I mean, part of the book explores in the last couple of chapters around, okay, so I made it into higher education, I made it out, you know, it's every you know, uh, story of, you know, Latino makes it out of Salinas, California. He gets to do big things in the world. That could have been the story, but then you get there and it's higher education, uh, you know, private industry, you know, they want to make use of, of, um, of people of color that we're on stages or, you know, we are, you know, the sole representative of our communities. So we really are like that, you know, that deck that other people get to stand on. And so we you know, figuring out how to do that work well, where, you know, I'm still able to stay connected, have my roots connected in my home community and resist the temptation to be a deck for someone else. So yes, I am a beautiful piece of redwood, chop me down and take me off to your institution so I can live and thrive there um, mm -hmm. actually isn't a, isn't a thing, but that's, that's how, you know, in some cases I was treated, even when I made it out there, you know, I tell the story about talk about poetic so here i am in my first academic job i'm the only one in my uh, division who has a phd i'm the only one who's qualified to teach um i'm doing research only one with a book at the time at the time you know i'm the i am the academic or you would think i am the academic on um staff and <clears throat> i remember going into a meeting where we were doing some I can't remember what it was. We were presenting on some of the stuff that some of the work we we're doing. I'd done all this writing. I'd done a big write up around the research and findings that we had had. And um, my supervisor at the time, who you know, well-meaning white liberal guy, does you know, good racial justice, anti-racist person, um, says, "Why don't you do tell one of your stories and I'll present the research?" You know, and I remember thinking to myself you know, dude, I did all the research and know all the theory and have the PhD and I'm being reduced to the sad, you know, brown kid stories. Yeah. Um, and that, that was, and he was doing that kind of like as a way to celebrate the diversity that was in our department, to celebrate the, the work that comes from communities like mine. I mean, he, I think it really was out of generative spirit but it was so demeaning that, you know, I am, I'm not just playing your game. I'm playing it better than you. And 
um, somehow you know this and I'm being, I'm being reduced to what you want to see me as. So, yeah. you know, resisting becoming people's decks is, is important. Yeah. Yeah. And you heard it here first, folks. You got the nobody cries B-sides and deleted scenes right there. So <laughs> yeah. extremely helpful and poetic metaphor. So, so uh, there you go. I mean, that's, that's, that's another great point to bring up too, is, is how do we create healthy systems in which people of color uh, like yourself are, are not becoming, like you said, the, the purple only tell their, their brown kids stories. Is, is there any, any strategies that you see as an academic, as a leader who's doing research into this kind of environment, like how we can be better at that? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things. I mean, the first is um, the current work I'm working on is creating conditions in which uh, people of color can thrive. Um, so I work, you know, primarily in academia. I'm working with institutions that um, have demonstrated commitment and are doing that work to some extent. So we're looking at, you know, how do you think about, you know, people, policy, and programs as kind of a foundational framework around how you how you do good uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice work. Um, so there's like the very tangible, practical things. If you have a budget, if you have, you know, uh, control over personnel, if you have your own research agenda, what are the stories you tell? You know, there's very tangible things you can take account for and just change your questions so you recognize the full diversity of, you know, the human population that you're serving. Um, you know, we just talked about it. I think there is... Um, there's a there's a sad diffusion of a whole bunch of histories and legacies and traditions that need to be um, surfaced in their full complexities. Um, so a good example uh, would be around, I guess, you know, with the rise of white supremacy and all that kind of stuff in our country, there's a lack of understanding around the foundations of this country and who was here first. Um, you know, there were Native First Nations, Indigenous folks who are already on this, on this land. Um, you know, my family, my wife's family have connections to. There were folks who came over on the Mayflower. Like, you know, my wife's family has, you know, connections through that. Um, and these stories, both of those stories are undertold um, in a way or. So in the case of uh, colonized folks, our stories are not told. You know, they have to resist, they have to exist that underground river. You know, they have to survive from generation to generation and practices and traditions just to keep us alive. So that way I know who my ancestors are, know the practices and traditions that kept us alive. Now there's this other sort of weird uh, colonial history telling where the you know, triumphalism of white folks in this country, you know, manifest destiny, all that kind of stuff, where um, somehow this was the full complexity of colonizing a land is got, has gone away. So how do you wrestle with uh, folks who <laughs> were colonizers? You know, one of the things I spend a lot of my time is thinking about my own tradition and legacies, you know, as a, you know, I've mixed um, backgrounds, so I can trace my lineage back to Macedonia and Turkey. Um, I can also trace it back to Mexico um, and present-day California. So how do I wrestle with my own complex history and narrative? You know, my son will have a, you know, a grandmother that's 
a native and, you know, mother that's Jewish and how does he wrestle with his own cultural identity in its fullness in a way that doesn't diffuse any of the difference so we can talk honestly about that. So one of the ways that we can do better is we can tell better stories. We can know our histories better. Um, you know, even for folks who were colonizers, the fact that uh, whiteness and <coughs> colonization gets to be glossed over. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a shame. It, it, it essentially doesn't just, you know, chop at the roots, but it denies you access to making connections with, you know, with folks who you could be building, building a beautiful forest with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I'm thankful that you brought that up as well, because I think that's some of the work that, that even something like Mystic Soul is, is trying to do. And the last time we connected was, was in Chicago just a few weeks ago, actually. We got to shoot some hoops together. And a little, a little mm-hmm. fun fact about Patrick and I is it's, we played against each other in college uh, basketball. So, uh, but, but that conference was a people of color centralized conference on, on contemplative spirituality, but, but more claiming anew for today those indigenous forms of it. So could you maybe as we as we move toward ending our time here today, just reflect upon the importance of maybe some of that event and, and getting to tell those stories from that vantage point and some of the new innovation that's developing there. Yeah, so one of the, the, the challenges um, that I think uh, Mystic Soul was living into is that for um, colonized folks and folks who can you know trace lineages back to you know, slave narratives who have ancestors who were brought over against their will um, and enslaved, that there's traditions and practices that helped us survive um, colonialism, um, often accompanied by a pious colonial structure, Christian structure, you know, uh, missionaries, evangelists, that sort of thing. Um, So we get these practices that are, that have been lost. So we have this, um, it's almost like a both am. We got to draw on these traditions, these mystical traditions within, you know, I'm a Catholic and you know, I was raised Catholic, you know, broadly understood as Christian, you know, the, I have a lot of practices that I learned in seminary and Christian community. Um, but I also have these practices that uh, were passed on by my grandmother that exist far beyond uh, the Catholic church. Um, and I have these other practices that I learned within community where we were recovering, um, traditions and, uh, prayers, breathing, uh, even divine, um, images and, and ways to think about the world, um, that predated Christianity hitting, you know, the Americas. So there's a sort of, how do we, how do we think about this multiple inheritances um, and draw out the beauty of them so that way we can thrive as a community. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, perfect, clear, distinct work, you know, like you don't have a pure lineage when you do that type of work. You really are kind of wrestling in the murky waters of, of um, how to, how to draw out the best um, from all the traditions that, you know, one might inherit. So that space, Mix of Soul, was perfect because you had um, folks um, from a variety of uh, communities that were bringing forward traditions and practices um, and really thinking and practicing together how best to uh, thrive and make those um, make those practices known. You know, I should say this, you know, also because we're on, you know, we're recording this and I'm not being too specific around the traditions and practices, that there's a... Um, 
since it is murky work, you know, it is work that's in process and we're constantly trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not like, a, you know, go here for a handbook on Latino spirituality from, you know, from, from me. It really is an ongoing living thing of recovery um, that not everyone should necessarily have access to. You know, some of the practices my grandmother taught me were primarily because the Catholic Church didn't want her practicing them. They want them to her to do it as a layperson. So she was doing these home practices and passing them on to me. And so part of the survival around these traditions to keep our ancestors alive really is um, to keep those traditions and practices to ourselves and share them amongst others who have similar traditions. Yeah. And I think that's a good place for us to land it today. I was I was thankful for one of the things that Teresa shared at, at that event. That basically, there's a fine line between Anglo people sitting in and experiencing this and listening to the voices and the practices of people of color being centralized and, and taking those in and then maybe colonializing those and taking them back to our communities and trying to do those, which is not what we should do. You know what I mean? And so... I was grateful for, for her just reiterating that we should not be appropriating these things, but we should actually be allowing for those voices to come to the fore, which come from within us, all of us. And so it caused me to reflect on my own, my own history and the ways in which my identity has sort of been whitewashed or, or diminished. And, and so I, I was grateful to, to hear that from her and to be encouraged to, to carry that forward. Yeah. And, and Tim, just to celebrate the, I mean, just the interview too. I mean, you're, I think modeling that really wonderfully here, you know, it's a, it's a conversation of multiple traditions and bibliographies between the two of us, you know, the, you know, when I say something, you reflect it back from the, you know, the, the grounding that, you know, without saying, you know, my, my grounding or my tradition, my intellectual spiritual tradition is more important or actually center. It's actually a conversation of shared practice um, where you've actually done the work to know your, you know, know your traditions and practices, you know, in the way that I, you know, in seminary and in my doctoral training, I had to go and learn someone else's traditions and histories and at the same time know my own, which is, you know, the the tax, the black and brown tax that, you know, scholars of color have to, to you know, bear. Um, but when you do that authentically together um, and share those traditions, I think it's really beautiful. I think you've been modeling that well. Oh, thanks, Pat. I appreciate you saying that. And uh yeah. I, I would just add that I am grateful for you in, in the way that you have called life out of me and, and sharing your story and, and modeling leadership and narrative praxis in, in such a poetic form that it has drawn me in and, and you have summoned life out of me. So I wanted to thank you for that and again for sharing your story and also again for, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to be with us on the podcast today. Thanks, Tim. You're very welcome. So as we close, uh, where can we keep up with what you're doing? Uh, so you can learn more about the Forum for Theological uh, Exploration at uh, fteleaders.org. We do a bunch of stuff. We support uh, Christian leaders, 18 to 30, who have discerned a call to ministry and organizations that work with them. And then, of course, my work, which supports scholars of color and religion. Um, you can also find me at patrickbreyes.com. Awesome. And you can find his book out right now on Chalice Press, uh, Dr. Patrick B. Reyes, Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. Thanks again for being here, Pat. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. 
You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TDBurnett. If you want to buy Pat's book, it's out now on Chalice Press and it's called Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. And also don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.